Lockdown Science. Hello and welcome to Lockdown Science on CAMFM with me, Ellie. And me, Andrew. This show is what happens when two biologists self-isolate together and are trying to do something with their spare time other than meticulously documenting the behaviour of their cat. She's called Suki, by the way, and we could write a whole book about her behaviour. We could, but in pursuit of retaining our sanity through what we are constantly being told are unprecedented times, we thought we'd come on air and tell you all about the favourite science we've heard this week. And because we're hearing quite enough about it at the moment, we've decided that this show will be coronavirus free. So by listening to us, you can isolate from corona both physically and mentally. There's loads of great science being produced right now, which understandably is not getting much press. So we're going to put that right. So join us for the next 30 minutes as we take you on a tour of some of our scientific highlights, from the groundbreaking and life-changing to the downright weird and wonderful. Science of the Week. First up, we have our Science of the Week quiz, where I test Andrew on his knowledge of science that has hit the press in the last week or so. But for obvious reasons, most of the news has been about COVID-19. But there are some cool pieces of research that have been overlooked. So are you ready to be tested on them? Not in the slightest. I haven't prepared at all. Excellent. That's just what I wanted to hear. Let's proceed anyway. Number one. What species of tree was found this week to be most effective at absorbing noise with its bark? Ooh, I have no idea. Great. Good start. Good start. I'm going to guess possibly an oak, maybe a cork oak because they've got really spongy bark. Oh, you know what? That's actually quite a good theory wrong but i like the fact that you gave some reasons why no it's a larch so why well okay a paper published this week by lee et al in applied acoustics found that of 13 species tested in a lab environment and i think the oak was one of those larch most effectively absorbed sound the potential applications of this information are really useful for urban planning because we all want to live somewhere quiet and urban environments can be particularly noisy. So maybe we should be looking to trees to provide some of that buffering. And so it's good to know which trees offer the most bang for your buck, as it were. So there have already been studies showing that roadside lines of trees can block particulate matter from getting into houses. So really, we should all be becoming tree huggers. But as for why it's not oak, I mean, so they tested a few different things. The the samples that they looked at differed in, uh, like, whether they were conifer or broadleafed, um, like the thickness of the bark. And one of the things they did find was that thickness of bark it makes a difference. I'm going to put my ecologist hat on, though. Um, Go ahead. Which is a hat that I wear almost all the time. It's a terrible hat. Yeah. And say that... That might not be the best for biodiversity, though. Do go on. Well, in general, conifers support fewer species than broadleaf trees and are less likely to be sort of the regularly occurring native trees, particularly in sort of southern England. So roadside oaks would probably support far more species than roadside larch. But question here, because I don't know the answer. So one thing that they found was that the older the tree, the better it was at absorbing sound, which makes sense of its thickness. Do oaks take longer to grow than larches? Probably, mm. yeah. I don't know specifically, but generally broadleaves take longer to grow. Yeah, so potentially you've got an issue there. Yeah. The other interesting thing would be whether species that are good at absorbing sound are also the same species that are good at absorbing particulate matter. True. Oh, I think we've got like a funding application right there. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, we both know nothing about trees Absolutely or nothing. sound quality or air pollution, but 
apart from that, the case is solid. We are so qualified for this. Yeah. Right, number two, moving on. I think you might know this one. What what invaded the seaside town of Llandidno this week? Oh, I do know this. You do know this. I do know this. It's a herd of mountain goats and they are adorable. Yes, it's a herd of Kashmiri goats. I mean, you've seen the pictures of this. And the videos. And the videos, so good. So usually these goats only trek down into Llandidno when the weather is bad and they tend to stay on the outskirts of town. But since lockdown, a herd has made its way into the centre of town and seems pretty darn comfortable there. So these frankly majestic goats have been photographed standing on walls, eating people's hedges, you know, goat things. And usually this is the kind of thing that you think that would annoy people, but I guess that because of the lockdown people are actually kind of enjoying this situation i guess it's a light-hearted distraction from everything else that's going on yeah i think we should petition our local parish council to buy a herd of village goats that we can just let roam around the village that'd be amazing yeah we actually have a clause in our house deeds which say that we're not allowed to have any farmyard animals i, I think, think so. that's where yeah. it's so we can't have a personal herd but yeah maybe if we get like a council just a communal herd a communal heard exactly bring us all together right number three the results from the rspb's big garden bird watch have just been released can you tell me what the top three sighted birds were they haven't actually looked at these which is quite shameful as an ornithologist but i'm going to have to guess that it's going to be starling house sparrow Mm -hmm. and let's go with blackbird so close if i told you that Blackbird was actually blue tit. Yeah. I think you wouldn't be that surprised. No. That was the other one I was thinking of. Actually. Can you order those? Okay. I'm going to go with House Sparrow, Starling, Blue Tit. Yes, exactly. Well, okay, you know all about the Big Garden Bird Watch, so why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, so it's a long running citizen science project run by the RSPB, which encourages people to get out into their gardens or preferably actually sit inside and watch their gardens for an hour over a weekend at the end of January each year. And the idea is that it captures a regular picture from across the country of what's happening to our garden birds and our garden bird populations at the same time of year so it's it's kind of standardized year on year and they get thousands and thousands of people sending in records and all you have to do is sit and watch for an hour and you count the maximum number of birds that you see of each species yeah it's Um, good isn't it as well because you don't need a garden you can go to your park you can just like sit inside and look at what lands in your area yeah, I guess. Yeah. So and in, in recent years, they've expanded out so that schools can take part as well. So they now include the week before and all the week after so that schools can, can do it in groups in their school grounds as well. Also, it's one of those things which is quite friendly during lockdown. I mean, this was actually done in January, but it would be because you can look at the birds out of your window. During lockdown, actually, the RSPB are running a, a, a lockdown, I can't remember what they're calling it, breakfast garden bird watch, maybe. Uh-huh. Uh, encouraging people to do the same thing between 8 and 9am while they eat their breakfast before they start work. That's a great idea because, I mean, people like us who are working from home no longer have a commute. Yep. So we can exactly. bird watch or we can sleep in. Ooh, tricky one, but no, yes, we should be bird watching. Yeah. Also, I know we're doing Twitter accounts later, but I'm going to slip in this has reminded me of a Twitter account that I saw the other day called the Self-Isolation Bird Club, which is basically for people to tweet about birds that they've seen in their Aww. garden while self-isolating, which is quite cute. And I mean, it must literally have only been set up in the last 
two weeks yeah. and it's already got thousands of followers wow. which is pretty impressive people love birds people though. do love birds yeah in fact it'd be interesting to know what's happening to twitchers so people who will travel really fast to see a bird like what twitchers are doing at the moment i imagine they're getting really really twitchy about the fact they can't go and see see the exciting birds that are coming up getting literally twitchy literal twitches literal twitches except not twitching because they can't the twitch is the act of going to see the bird yeah so they literally can't twitch but they're going to be getting twitchy about not being able to twitch so just check the twitter account it's at si bird club if you want to look it up right number four according to a study published at the end of last week what animal are we now able to interpret the facial expressions of using machine learning technology blimey that's difficult um i'll give a a clue that it's a lab-based animal well, I was going to say it's going to be it's going to have to be an animal that has facial expressions. Yeah, probably a mammal. Dogs, maybe. Dogs have got pretty good facial expressions, or some kind of primate. Both good shouts, but no. But what what might you keep in a lab that's a, a mammal or a mouse? A mouse. There we go. Do I give you that? I'm not sure I give you that. No. Okay. It was mice. In a study in science by Dolensek et al., it was found that machine learning algorithms could categorise mouse facial expressions objectively and quantitatively at millisecond timescales into different emotions like joy, fear, pain and disgust. The researchers noted that to a human eye, it might be clear that like something is happening on the mouse's face, but it's not obvious exactly what that conveys. And this algorithm can assess those facial expressions qualitatively and quantitatively based on subtle movements of the mouse's ears, nose, whiskers and facial muscles. And this sounds like, I mean, why though? But these results could be really useful for neuroscience research into like the basis of emotional responses yeah but how do they know that that's what they're feeling at that time presumably that's measured by neuro neurological responses yeah so you sort of then be like it's a bit circular well they do not very nice things to mice which would induce typically these kind of responses so for example i think joy or something like joy they did through giving them sugar water right so you could say maybe it's like delight or it's something happy right you give them something foul tasting to get disgust yes you yell boo at them to get fear and sure yeah let's say that probably something it's worse it's worse Mm -hmm. than that but essentially you you give them stimuli which would typically bring up responses like that i mean it's quite human centric right yeah but I don't know. I just thought it was quite cool that this algorithm was able to repeatedly, quantitatively and qualitatively analyse these facial expressions. You know, it's almost like we can understand another species. Number five. On 31st of March, NASA closed its most recent round of applications for astronauts. How many people applied? I'll give you a little bit more information about this because it might make it easier to guess. To be eligible to apply, you need to be an American citizen with either a master's degree in STEM or currently or have a PhD in STEM or be a medical doctor or you are or are going to be a certified pilot. And as well as that, you need to have two years of professional experience or at least a thousand hours of pilot in command time in a jet aircraft. Right. So not just anyone can apply. You need to be pretty qualified to start with. But then again, the number of people in America who have, I guess if we take the minimum of that, which would be a master's in STEM, 
based on the amount of time it takes you to do and two years of professional experience. That's probably the minimum time. Still quite a lot of people. Yeah. How many people do you think applied? Do I get a certain number either way for what this counts as correct? Yes, I will give you a 5% margin. Oh, clever. You gave me a percentage rather than... I did. I I thought that was going to give me an indication of the order of magnitude. Okay. Mm, 12,000? Ooh, that is exactly right. <laughs> I promise you, I did not read the notes. I haven't, I haven't seen your notes. Well, okay, so, so the, the correct answer and all the information that NASA has given is more than 12,000. Very oh. nice. This is the I just did a quick you know, calculation in my head of you know, subtracting all those You were just there factors. going, right, how many people are American and how many people in America have master's degree? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, yeah. okay. Not just an incredibly lucky guess. So this was the second highest ever number of applications that NASA's received for its astronaut applications. This is after the 18,300 that they received for the last class of astronauts that graduated in January. But this time the application period was halved, so they only had a month rather than I think they used to have two months to apply. But crucially, the entry requirements were raised. So you used to just have to have a bachelor's degree in STEM. And now you have to have a master's in STEM. So that's probably why the applications dropped. Once chosen, the astronauts will undergo about two years of initial skills training on the ground before they get the chance to go into space. Would you ever consider applying to be an astronaut? I mean, like in an alternative universe where I wouldn't immediately say no. I mean, I don't think I would meet the required physical skill set. Uh, that's true not, not least because i don't have 2020 vision true um academically you could do it if you were american right because you have a phd yeah and you have two years as a postdoc at yeah. least more than that so i think it's going to be the I physical, think there's some physical limitations yeah. but aside from that i think going in space would be quite cool I think it sounds absolutely awful. I don't understand. I know, I know what, you do. I don't understand what, what these 12,000 people are thinking. But I'm glad that somebody's doing it because I think it's very important science. That is the end of the quiz. And you scored two, two and two and thirds. Two thirds. Yeah. I reckon that's okay, though, considering... <laughs> slightly better than 50%. Slightly better than 50%. But you are still working from home as normal. And these news items have been a little bit sidelined. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fine. Journal Club. Cool. So next up, we're going to share with you a couple of our favourite papers. What have you got, Ellie? This study by Ong et al. was published on Monday in the journal Frontiers in Marine Science and was called Annual Bands in Vertebrae Validated by Bomb Radiocarbon Assays Provide Estimates of Age and Growth of Whale Sharks. Probably from the way I said that, you can tell which part excited me. So from the late 1940s, several countries, including the US, the UK and the Soviet Union, started testing nuclear bombs, which caused the amount of carbon-14 in the environment to just about double. Now, what does this have to do with whale sharks, I hear you say? Well, first of all, let's go into what a whale shark is. Can you guess, Andrew, what is the average length and weight of a whale shark? Uh, they're big. I know. Yeah. Well, they're the biggest fish in the ocean. Mm-hmm. I think they can grow to about twelve meters and two tons. No. So basically, the average size of an adult whale shark is about nine point eight meters. But so yes, they could grow to twelve okay. meters. And the average weight is nine tons. Nine. Yeah, wow. they're big boys. Mm. Okay, so back to what bombs have to do with ageing sharks. Well, when all this extra carbon-14 was released into the environment during atomic bomb testing, some of it got absorbed into the ocean and was incorporated into the bones and carbon 
cartilage of marine animals. And we know the rates at which carbon-14 degrades. So by looking at the levels of carbon-14 in whale shark vertebrae, we can determine roughly what age it is. This is particularly cool because scientists haven't always agreed on how to age whale sharks so far. One method with dead whale sharks is to look at these distinct lines that form on their vertebrae during their lives. It's kind of like like you see rings in, in trees. Yeah, dendrochronology. Exactly. Uh, but the issue is that there hasn't been absolute consensus as to whether these lines are produced annually or biannually. And that's a huge difference. I mean, if you choose the wrong one, you could be literally halving or doubling the suspected age of one of these whale shark specimens. What this new bomb carbon method is useful for is validating the traditional vertebrae ring method. Using two museum specimens, the authors of the study were able to conclude that the vertebrate lines seem to be created annually. Isn't that fun? That is fun. So that's based on when they know that nuclear bombs went off and there was a load of carbon-14 around. Yes. And therefore they and they could, therefore they therefore can work out the spacing of those boosts in carbon-14 in those specimens. Yeah, seemingly so. I think it's not necessarily specific bombs going off. I think it's like activity. So there was a particular peak in nuclear activity. But it's yeah. really that's really fun because you can then use this cool bomb method to validate more traditional methods. Yeah. So how long do whale sharks live? This suggests that they live longer than we thought they did. Yes. So some estimates now are saying potentially up to 150 years. Wow. But the specimens that they used, I think the oldest was 50 years because this is just done on dead whale sharks. But yeah, some people think maybe 150 years. Wow. Anyway, I know that you have a study that you want to share, although from the sounds of things, this isn't a recent one, but an old and loved one that you've rediscovered this week. What have you got for me? Um, Yeah, so it's probably going to be a theme that you'll do the cool, interesting science and I'll do the weird stuff. But this one starts okay. Part of the reason I like it is it is an incredibly reputable kind of paper. So this is a study from the British Medical Journal, and it's done by a load of doctors. But the title is The Case of the Disappearing Teaspoons, Longitudinal Cohort Study of the Displacement of Teaspoons in an Australian Research Institute. I mean, the reason why I like this is clearly it's hilarious, but also like it's so rigorous. It's a really well done study, but answering a, well, possibly quite useless question. Okay, so tell me, what is the question? Where have all the bleeping teaspoons gone? That's literally Uh, To to, to quote the authors. To quote the authors. To quote the authors. I think they use a slightly ruder word, but we're not allowed to use that on the radio. Yeah. So they're feeling passionate about the question. They're feeling passionate about it, yeah. So, I I mean, I think the first paragraph of the introduction kind of sums this up. So in January 2004, the authors found their tea room bereft of teaspoons. Although a flunky, brackets lead author's initials, was rapidly dispatched to purchase a new batch, these replacements in turn disappeared within a few months. Exasperated by our consequent inability to stir in our sugar or to accurately dispense instant coffee, we decided to respond in time-honoured epidemiologist fashion and measure the phenomenon. So what they did was they went out and bought some teaspoons. So they thought about this. They did a pilot study and looked at how quickly they were disappearing. And there were eight tea rooms in their institute. Four of them were communal ones and four of them were linked to particular research groups. So Ooh, they were yeah, a bit more kind of private. Yeah. And they looked at the rate of teaspoon loss between each of those types and they also thought about teaspoon quality oh yeah you're more likely to nick a fancy one do you nick a fancy one because it's worth more Mm. or do you value the fancy ones and think i can't possibly take that so they bought different types of teaspoons Mm. and then they distributed them they stratified their sample based on the rate of loss in different tea rooms in the pilot study so explain what you mean by stratify there so tea rooms where more teaspoons were lost in the pilot study Mm -hmm. received more teaspoons in the main study to make sure 
that they had a decent data set from that Very teamwork. important. I mean, it's it's carefully done. And then they calculated the half-life of a teaspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Just like carbon fourteen. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, we didn't plan this at all. We actually didn't. <laughs> yeah, there's so much similarity between your paper and mine. I forgot to say they did one other thing. Yeah. They also asked people in the the institute to fill in a questionnaire about teaspoons. Uh, a third of people who responded admitted to stealing a teaspoon. So it was anonymous. It was anonymous. Yeah. So you don't admit to those kind of crimes. No. Outwardly. And a fifth of them admitted to stealing a teaspoon in the last year, of which half of them said that they'd stolen one from work. <gasps> this is this brings out the worst in people. Yeah, it really does. It really does. But um, can we can we work out? Were some of those people lying for the spoons to have gone down at that rate? Oh, they must be. Some of those people I mean, I think so. Or Mm. people absentmindedly steal teaspoons, Mm. which Mm. is also possible. But the hilarious thing is that over half of respondents said that they were very dissatisfied with the teaspoon coverage coverage in the Institute. Stop stealing them, people. Yeah. The all-important results. The half-life of teaspoons was 81 days but the half-life of teaspoons in the communal tea rooms was only 42 days which was significantly shorter than that in the tea rooms associated with particular research groups which was 77 days teaspoons are more likely to disappear from communal tea rooms okay the value of the teaspoon had no effect interesting yeah so um so that wasn't that wasn't important and so the rate of teaspoon loss was about was just under one teaspoon per hundred teaspoon days what's what's a teaspoon day well, it's it's a day for every... So one teaspoon in the department for one day okay. is, is a teaspoon day. Yep, yep, got it. So if you have 100 teaspoons there for a day, that's 100 teaspoon days. Or if one teaspoon remains there for 100 days, that's 100 teaspoon days. Gotcha. It was The, the number of teaspoon days measured was in the thousands. Their estimated rate of teaspoon loss was so high that they estimate that in order to maintain a institute-wide practical population of 70 teaspoons, they would need to purchase 250 teaspoons annually. No. Yeah. Where are all the teaspoons going, though? Well, this is what they come on to. They propose three explanations for where the teaspoons might have gone. And the first, again, excellent science, well-known explanation for certainly historical ecologists, tragedy of the commons. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the tragedy of the commons, this is the idea that when resources are open access and they're open to everybody, they are prone to be exploited. So so the tragedy of the commons comes from the idea of communal grazing lands. So if there's communal grazing land that everyone can put their sheep on, then an individual farmer can gain a benefit by grazing some extra sheep there at a marginal cost because the cost is split between everyone who uses the land but that one farmer gains all of the benefit but if every farmer then takes that approach and grazes more sheep there the costs rapidly build up and eventually the grazing will collapse because the commons will be overgrazed and nobody can graze their sheep there and exactly the same thing happens with teaspoons Mm -hmm. so if if Everyone would get, any individual in the Institute would gain a marginal benefit by t- taking a teaspoon mm-hmm. um, because then they have their personal teaspoon and then they don't have to share with all of these other hoarders in the department. But as soon as everyone starts taking a teaspoon, the number of communally available teaspoons rapidly disappears. Yep. And this theory fits in perfectly with the fact that the teaspoons disappeared quicker from the communal common rooms than they did from the private common rooms. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Theory number one. That's theory number one. Nice scientific backing. Theory number two, and I'll quote the paper because they do it the best. Somewhere in the cosmos, 
along with all the planets inhabited by humanoids, reptilioids, walking troids, and superintelligent shades of the colour blue, a planet is entirely given over to spoon life forms. <laughs> Unattended spoons make their way to this planet, slipping away through space to a world where they can enjoy a uniquely spoonoid lifestyle, responding to highly spoon orientated stimuli, and generally leading the spoon equivalent of a good life. That's so beautiful. I can, hope that is true. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> can, can you guess where that comes from? No. It's it's hitchhikers go to the gallery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. This theory number two proposes that the spoons are kind of doing it of their own accord. Yeah. Um, and perhaps this fits in better with the observation that there's no difference between teaspoons of different value because it's nothing to do with the people taking yeah. the teaspoons. All teaspoons have the same draw to get to their spoon planet and therefore as soon as they're unattended a valuable teaspoon versus an invaluable teaspoon will be equally likely to start their journey okay. and therefore I think so far we've, we're kind of 50-50 on the plausibility of these two explanations. I, I mean I like it I'm not sure we have much backing for that one but you know it's got the fun factor so theory three. Okay theory three I'm not going to lie this one confused me even more counter phenomenological resistentialism obviously which like me you'll be completely familiar with but just in case just you're in not case. I'll read what they tell us it is so apparently resistentialism is the belief that inanimate objects have a natural antipathy towards humans and therefore it is not people who control things but things that increasingly control people Whoa. although it seems unreasonable to say that the teaspoons are exerting any influence over the Burner Institute's employees brackets with the exception of the authors. Their demonstrated ability to migrate and disappear shows that we have little or no control over them. So this is not necessarily mutually exclusive from theory two. No, that's true. I think. Um, They do kind of go hand in hand. So I'm going to lump this together as a single theory of basically either people are nicking the spoons (laughs) because of the tragedy of the commons or the spoons are migrating themselves away to their own spoon world because they don't like people i i would love to think it was a second but i think i'm gonna have to put my science hat on and say i think it might be the first one. Oh, but i do love this study i love this study so much it's so scientific apart from all the stuff yeah at the end. i mean they've got you know decay curves and everything in it and and the the pdf is sort of littered with pictures of teaspoons <laughs> for, for no apparent reason you didn't know what they looked like <laughs> yeah i but guess so it's in a reputable journal it's yeah. properly published so I think that that counts as yeah. your paper of the week. Isolation recommendations. Right, well, we've just got a couple of minutes left, so let's finish off with some isolation recommendations. Andrew, I've set you the challenge of finding your best Twitter account for lockdown. What will you be recommending? Uh, I'm going to recommend the Twitter account called Extinct Animals, which Mm -hmm. is at extinct underscore animals. And the reason I like this is because they just post pictures and little facts about extinct animals that you've never heard of. And generally, these are computer-generated images or or drawings. They're extinct, so they don't have photos. And they're quite cool and, you know, they're normally quite interesting. But occasionally, they're also hilarious. And the reason I thought of this was that their latest post, which I saw yesterday, was about a man-sized penguin called Icodiptes, which is an extinct species of, of giant penguin. I suppose it's similarly sized to an emperor penguin, maybe a bit bigger than an emperor penguin. But the illustration that they chose to show how big said penguin was, was an Icodiptes being mm, straddled, coddled by a man in speedos. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I have no idea. No explanation given. 
Um, oh. That was the picture they could find. I'm looking at I this don't... picture, and actually, it's quite wholesome. It looks like he's hugging the penguin. It just looks like he and the penguin want to be friends. Well, I think he wants to be friends. I'm not sure. It's not clear from the penguin. We need that algorithm to see we what do. the penguin's thinking to determine whether the penguin wants to be friends with him or whether it's thinking, please get away from me. I think the penguin looks slightly uncomfortable. So that's at extinct underscore animals. And my recommendation comes in the form of TV because I spent the first two and a bit weeks of quarantine with awful flu symptoms, which were suspiciously corona-like. And the only thing that I was able to do were cough, sleep and watch Netflix. And I found that right now the most soothing thing I can do is watch or rewatch some nature documentaries. So Netflix has some good newer ones like Night on Earth and Our Planet, but also some golden oldies like The Blue Planets and The Planet Earths 1 and 2. The BBC also still has Seven Worlds, One Planet, Dynasties and loads of classic David Attenborough's like Life, Africa and Frozen Planet. I just feel like David Attenborough's voice can make things feel okay, even when they're not entirely okay. They can. Protect David Attenborough at all costs. He's wonderful. Well, this has been a blast, but I think it's time to go. By which you mean it's time to stop recording and dismantle this makeshift recording studio we've set up in our house, but obviously go nowhere because that's not allowed. Obviously. And by makeshift recording studio, he's referring to the bunk beds in our spare room with a duvet draped over them. Got to get them acoustics. So thanks for joining us today. If you want to send us through your thoughts or recommendations for some cool science we should look at ready for next week's show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew underscore Bladen. And I'm predictably at Eleanor underscore Bladen. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure you tune in next Thursday at 7pm for another episode of Lockdown Science. Lockdown Science.